This is episode 46, straight up chat about men's health and men's bits with Dr. Robert Valenzuela. Welcome to the show, it's Paul here. Hope you're all very well. This podcast is straight up chat about men's health. I'm interviewing subject matter experts, influencers, best-selling authors, specialists, and people who've been through a journey of adversity and just want to share that journey with you. What's really important to me is that as a collective, we support community and community initiatives. And when I launched Patreon for the Man Bits podcast, it was an opportunity for you, the listener, to contribute to the longevity of the show, the podcast, but also contribute to organizations that support communities. And I've spent the last couple of months researching a number of non-profit organizations because I want to make sure that their values align with the values of the show. I met with the CEO, Mary, of Talk Out Loud, and I love what they do. Talk Out Loud is a non-profit organization. They provide harm prevention initiatives, activities, and programs targeted primarily at young people under 30 and their families. And that holistic approach that includes family was really important to me. So their mission is to equip the young people with the tools necessary to maintain a healthy mental, physical, and emotional lifestyle. And they use a proactive, positive psychology approach. I can hear you now saying, Paul, how do I get on board? Well, that's easy. Go to themanbits.com forward slash reward. themanbits.com forward slash reward. Check out the video and you can choose to take part in Patreon. I thank you. Let's get on with the show. How is your erection? That's the question that my guest today asks every patient that enters his office. That's because Dr. Robert Valenzuela specializes in prosthetic urology, sexual dysfunction, and he helps guys with the treatment of Peyronie's disease, erectile dysfunction, and premature ejaculation, plus many other issues and conditions that men can suffer from. His qualifications are as long as your arm. In addition to his private practice, he's a former assistant clinical professor at the Squire Urological Clinic at New York Presbyterian Hospital of Columbia University. He's a director of penile prosthesis surgery, a diplomat of the American Board of Urology, and a fellow of the American College of Surgeons, plus more. He's a hell of an educator, hell of a nice guy, and we had a really straight-up conversation about some of those performance issues that guys experience in the bedroom. Today, we debunk some of the myths about penis enhancements, pills, and potions, and he helps us understand a bit more about the issues behind erectile dysfunction and premature ejaculation. What's more to be said? Let's jump into the episode now and have a listen to this very insightful conversation with Dr. Robert Valenzuela, a.k.a. Dr. V. It's great to have you on. Thanks for jumping on for this conversation. Oh, it's my pleasure. Thank you for having me. I'm looking forward to uh, talking to you, Paul. I'm really happy to have you on. And as I said before, especially as we're talking on the subject of man bits, I had a guest a while ago. He, he said that the word man bits, the name man bits, is sort of polyphrenic in that there's uh, many parts to men, many parts to their makeup and psychology. But today is actually talking about man bits. Yes, real focus. <laughs> yeah, real focus on actual man bits. The first question I'm going to ask you, Dr. V, is how do you do what you love and love what you do? Well, you know, the question is always is why did you become a urologist? You know, of all the fields of medicine, why a man wants to go into urology and play with guys' man bits? <laughs> <laughs> well, the reality is, you know, while I was looking at the different specialties, 
one of the things that I found was that I liked surgery, but I didn't like a lot of little things about each aspect of it. So if you think about gastroenterology or general surgery, you're dealing with the bowel. Not a fun place to be. It's wiggly all over the place. Not a lot of fun. <laughs> and then you're talking about being ear, nose, and throat, ENT. Mm. You know, I didn't like spit. Didn't like looking in people's mouths. That just wasn't fun either. And so one day I rotated through urology, and I happened to see a whole host of different kinds of surgeries, and I thought it was the greatest thing. Not only that, the patients were happy. The uh, doctors were very happy in what they do. Mm. And that sort of stuff just appealed to me. Um, didn't really realize, didn't really focus on the fact that we were just working on the genital urinary system, on the genitals, because we do work on other areas as well. So, and then my little just honed in on that area. Because I'm guessing that that niche area isn't necessarily brought up in the conversation you have with a school, a career advisor, is it? You know, that it is. It is one of the areas, but it is one of the low-key areas. They talk about all the specialties, but the amount of time we spend in urology is very limited. We only spend one week of our four years in urology. So that goes to show you the level of importance that it has, but it is something that it's up to you to seek out. And the number of people that go into it on a yearly basis, is it's been growing over the years, but I'll give you an idea. From my class, we had 130 students, only two people went into urology. It's obviously a hugely important area to be working in. So do, do you need more people in the area? Is it an area that sort of suffers from a lack of expertise? I think there is a, a little bit of a deficiency. Here in the United States, we have a good number, but there's always seems to be a little bit of a deficiency. There's always, there's a lack uh, of specialists. And so you may have, like in New York City, you have hundreds of urologists, but you have an area that it's remote may have one urologist for millions of millions of patients. So yeah, I mean, it, it's a, it's focused in different parts of the country and that's the problem. People just want to stay in the big metropolitan areas, like every specialty. And so what was life like before urology for you? Before urology, I did a whole host of things. I did everything. <laughs> All right. Okay. I was a newspaper delivery boy all the way up to a furniture cleaner. I did it all <laughs> before I went to medical school. Finally went to medical school and then went into urology. But our specialty from medical school, you go directly into urology. So you spend two years in general surgery. And after the general surgery, you go ahead and do three or four years of urology. That's the way that it works. And so there was sort of three areas I was interested in talking to you about today because they strike me as three major areas that guys have issues with. They are Peyronie's disease, ED, so erectile dysfunction, and PE, premature ejaculation. Three areas, and, and I think with PE, with premature ejaculation, one in three men have or can suffer from that. But first of all, I wanted to ask you about Peyronie's disease. What is it? Well, Peyronie's disease, it's at the point where you begin to experience some sort of plaque formation or angulation in the penis. So the way that we describe Peyronie's disease is any angulation of the penis, whether there is a plaque present or not. So if you have your penis that it's angled in a, in a specific way or it begins to hinder your sexual activity, that is considered Peyronie's disease. But the way that we, we say that it might have developed, we presume that it might have developed is that during sexual activity, you might have hit or missed penetration. During intercourse, you wind up coming out, hitting the bone, causes a little trauma, which we don't realize. And then we continue. 
Well, that little trauma can cause what's called a micro perforation of the capsule of the penis. Now, the penis is made up of two cylinders. Those cylinders are full of blood, and there are two layers to those cylinders, an inner layer, and then there's a second, thicker layer that contains everything. But if you get a microfracture and you bleed into that area, you may not get any, any hematoma, any black and blue or bruising of your penis, so you don't think anything of it. The problem is that that microfracture needs to heal. And oftentimes what it does, the way it heals is by forming a plaque formation. And that plaque can continue to spread. And so if you think of a plaque, if you think of your finger, take a look at your hand, right? And if you ever played basketball and jammed your finger, your finger bends, right? So what happens is your penis, because of the trauma in that area, begins to pull, pull, and cause an angulation. If you look at some of the pictures, they can be very severe. It can be from five degrees, 10 degrees, to almost you know 90 degrees where the penis is completely curved either up or down. But there's also patients who develop Peyronie's disease without a plaque formation, without angulation. They get what's called fibrosis inside the penis. And the only way we detect this is by doing an ultrasound. Now we, we do is we simulate an erection in the, in the office by injecting a medication that causes an erection. And then we're able to look and what the tissues inside the penis look like. We look at the angulation, the size, the length, the girth, everything. You mentioned some of the impacts there, but I mean, I can imagine that it can have huge impacts for guys and relationships as well. Other than the obvious sort of issues around sexual intercourse, what other impacts can it have for a guy to have this issue? You know, oftentimes sexual intercourse is not an issue. Most of these guys are able to perform. It's mostly psychological, subjective. The fact that their penis looks different that it looks funny, that it has an angle. But in fact, all, most of these guys are able to penetrate, except in the more severe cases. These patients are able to have sexual activity, they have full erection, and they're able to perform. But they're embarrassed about the appearance of their penis. And because they're embarrassed, they may not want to engage in sexual activity for that reason. So that's one of the main problems associated with Peyronie's disease. Oftentimes for my patients, I tell them, as long as you're functional, and as long as your partner is not bothered by it sexually, then you really don't want to intervene because the consequences of treating Peyronie's disease oftentimes can be worse. So we try to intervene at the point that it's beginning to affect their sexual function. So just because your penis looks funny doesn't mean you have to treat it. As long as you function, you know, that's all perfectly fine. You know, Paul, I like to say to my patients, beauty is at within reach of the light switch. Right? <laughs> Off the switch, everybody looks beautiful. That's all it is. So you don't have to worry about the way your penis looks as long as it works. I would say that there's, there's probably some points of view that uh, imply that a little bit of a curve is quite welcome as well. Yeah. Is it difficult for guys? I mean, are they generally sort of referred to you with partners as well? Or do guys, you know, ha happily step forward for this kind of help? Oh, yeah. Guys come in, happily come in, but they very rarely do they come in with a partner. I love it when they come in with a partner because then I can tell them and I can explain to the partner and I bring them into the room when I do the test. And then also I could also question the partner. Is this affecting your sexual function? Is this affecting your sexual life? And those partners that are able to say no, that it's not an issue, hopefully I can get the patient to understand. This is not so important right now. There are little things that we can do to try to make it better. It's going to improve it. There is a new medication that seems to work for some of these patients, but there are treatments that we can do that can help them, such as traction device, exercises. These little things can help straighten it out a little bit without having to do any surgical intervention. Don't get me wrong, I love to operate, but I love to operate on the right patient. 
Yeah, right. I guess surgery wouldn't always be the the go to, would it? It's um. So the plaque you mentioned is it like scar tissue, similar to scar tissue? Yes, it's exactly that. It's like a scar tissue. So you can actually feel the scar. Have you ever seen anybody with keloids? Those are the thickening of scars that people get. They have a raised scar. Think of having that underneath the skin and the penis because you can't see it on the surface. It's all underneath. You have to palpate it. And usually the point of inflection is noticeable at the time of erection. When you're flaccid, that doesn't happen. The other thing with Peyronie's disease, especially the ones that don't demonstrate a plaque, is loss of length. So guys will come in and say, I've lost an inch, I've lost two inches of penis. And I like to tell my patients that an inch on a penis is like 10 feet on a yacht. Think about that, right? (laughs) (laughs) i got a feeling you could really get your patients to feel at ease in your office. Well, you know, you're talking about a very sensitive area. The whole idea is, you know, you want to feel comfortable. You want to feel that you want to come forward and be able to tell your doctor everything that's going on and not just try to hide things or try to allow him to try to figure out what's going on. The more information you give him, the better we know how to manage it. So penile enhancement surgery, is that actually a thing? Is that something men have? Is it surgery that people get? Because often we get the information really from me, the guerrilla marketing websites, spam emails. But is it a current thing that guys come in to get done? My favorite is all the pills that are out there. You go to any website, they have all these pills that are going to make you a mega man, right? They're going to make you huge. (laughs) Guess what? None of that works, right? And how many of those guys return those pills saying it didn't work for me? Most of them, they buy it. They never return it. They never do anything about it. There are penile enhancement surgery procedures. Most of them are frowned upon by, by the AUA, the American Urological Association, and the Sexual Medicine Society. And the reason is, is because they can be deforming procedures and they can also affect the function of the, of the penis. So therefore, they're not recommended for patients. Most of these procedures are being done by plastic surgeons or cosmetic surgeons. Often they don't have enough knowledge about the penis. And while it may appear perfectly normal at that point, within months, they get all kinds of abnormalities and irregularities in their penis. And then it becomes very difficult for the urologist to manage the, those cases. But we have something in the horizon that's almost similar to a breast implant. This is, I think this is probably going to be what, what would be considered almost the equivalent of breast implant for male enhancement surgery. And it's something called penuma. And penuma is a silicone block that goes underneath the skin of the penis and pushes the penis out to get, increase the girth and the length of the penis without affecting its function. And because it is a solid block that sits in that area, it is not going to distort the anatomy of the penis. That means they're not going to get lumps and bumps where you have migration of fat or collagen the way that we used to have. So during my training, and this was back in 1998, I actually did a couple of enhancement surgery with the surgeon that I was working with at that time. And you could see where this was headed, but you could see that the material that we use oftentimes will form like an accordion and cause the penis to shrink sometimes in about 20% of the patients. And that's the encounter with what's available now. With Panuma, I don't think that's going to be the case. I think we're going to see that you're going to be able to lengthen to the point that the penis is able to be lengthened. You got to remember the penis is not like the breast where you can expand to as much as you want. You can only expand a certain amount and what the limiting factors allow you. But once this implant is in and is maximized, patients can gain up to an inch to two inches of penis and 
about it, an inch and a half of girth, which is a very significant amount. And I think the studies that are going to be done are going to be prospected. There's a guy in, in California that's doing it now. He's the one that invented it. He's the one that patented and his name is Roger Ellis. And ultimately what's going to happen is there's going to be five centers in the United States where we're going to do a prospective study, where we're going to look at these patients and we're going to follow them for six months, a year, two years, and make sure that the procedure is durable. And I think that is the right way to do it. Unfortunately, patients get desperate. They want it done right away. It's not a good idea. So actually, I'm going to be one of those guys that's going to be doing those procedures. It doesn't come without risk, though, does it? Absolutely. I tell my patients crossing the street, there's a risk of crossing the street, isn't there? <laughs> no matter what you do, there's always a risk. So think of it this way. You know, breast implants have a risk of about 1% to 3%, depending on who's doing them. And there's always the risk. So there's always a risk of infection, erosion, malfunction. All of those, all those things exist. In the study that's going to be coming out in the Journal of Sexual Medicine on the uh, Panuma, what they demonstrate is about a 3% uh, risk of complications associated with the procedure. You're listening to Straight Up Chats with the Man Bits Podcast. Are you ready for the middle bits? Sure, absolutely. Let's go. Okay, in your opinion, what's your number one tip for a fulfilled life? My number one bit for your a fulfilled life? Your number one tip. Enjoy what you do. You have to be happy with what you do. If you're happy with whatever kind of work you do or whatever kind, what, whatever it is that you're doing in your life, then everything else falls into place. If you're miserable at work where you spend, where you spend more than 70% of your time, you're going to be miserable in your relationship, in your family. Everything about you is going to be miserable. So you have to enjoy what you do. You have to have some level of satisfaction from that. And it's not just money. It's about being satisfied with what you do, regardless of the money. Yeah, the money is great. If you're making tons of money, but you're miserable, guess what? Everything else about your life is miserable. And that's also going to bring on a lot of psychogenic and physiologic issues. You see that when you see you know, the tragedies around the celebrities recently and so on. It's not about the money. It's not about the external material, is it? So um, whose work has influenced your work? Do you have a mental coach or someone who's inspired you to be where you are now? You know, I originally started doing uh, penile prosthesis surgery back in about 2000. So prior to that, I was doing a lot of radical prostate cancer. I was treating a lot of the patients. And I have a community practice. And because my community practice, my patients would come back for treatment for the complications from radical prostate, you know, I wanted to be able to take care of my patients as a whole. So I met, back then I met a gentleman called Steve Wilson. And he is the most prolific implanter in the world. He's known worldwide. And I think if anybody has influenced what I do and how I do it, it's probably Steve Wilson. He is, he's a great gentleman. He's been a great mentor and a great teacher. And actually, he's still, I still work with him from time to time. And I always look forward to that. So I think Steve Wilson, out of all the people that I can think of in terms of my career, he's influenced me a great deal. What's the last book or resource that you read? I can't remember right now, but I, I just read the, the trilogy of Red Sparrow. I really enjoyed that. I, I really haven't seen the movie because I don't want to destroy the whole image 
of what the book portrayed. So I haven't seen the movie of Red Sparrow. Have you? You know which movie I'm talking about? Uh, I've seen the movie, but I haven't read the book. See, there you go. So if you if you've seen the movie and you read the book, you'll be like totally blown away. The the, the book was great. I really enjoyed the trilogy. And my final question of the middle bits is, if you could choose one word which sets your intention for the next 12 months, what would that word be? Evolution. Oh, I like that. Yeah. What's inspired that word? Well, my career continues to evolve. I think while we've been doing the same procedure, I do penile prosthesis surgery, while we've been doing this surgery for 40 years and 45 years, I think it continues to evolve. And I think my technique and the things that I do continue to evolve. But more importantly, my practice continues to evolve. I joined Mount Sinai about a year and a half ago after being at Columbia Presbyterian. And it's been continuously evolving. So I don't think I've reached the point where I could say, yeah, I'm exactly where I need to be. I don't think that's the case. Uh, and my wife would say that in my life, I would never say that. <laughs> but I'm always looking to get better, to do something more. She's always saying, I'm, I'm always evolving, trying to get to the next level. So the prosthesis surgery, how does that help people? What do you use it for? Well, you know, from my title, I'm uh, the director of penile prosthesis surgery. What that means is that I, I do, I take care of a lot of the patients who have what's called end-stage erectile dysfunction. These are patients who have been through the mill. They have tried all other options. They've tried the medications, they've tried injections, urethral suppositories. They've oftentimes tried even other cosmetic surgery, anything like that. And they're at the point that nothing really works. Now, that doesn't mean that they're not able to get erection. What it means is that their erection is not sufficient. So they can, they can get a little bit full or a little bit hard, but that's not enough to be able to have intercourse. So that's where the penile prosthesis comes in. These are patients who are considered end stage. And how it helps is it helps men restore their sexual function. So I like to tell my patients, you can continue to treat the problem or you can cure the problem. All the medications and all the things that are out there are available to treat the problem. But the penile prosthesis ultimately cures the problem. It's irreversible. Once you put it in, you're on demand, meaning you can have an erection anytime at any point in time. I tell me, I tell my patients that it levels the playing field. You know how women can have intercourse. They don't want to. Guess what, buddy? <laughs> now, if they don't want to, they can still have sex. Go ahead, honey. Just pump it up. <laughs> <laughs> Literally, just push the button. Just push the button, and it's on. That's it, baby. Just squeeze it and get it going. <laughs> and, and it's a great thing because it does. It does give them the erection. It doesn't change. Think of a breast implant. When women get breast implant, I keep going back to that because it's very comparable. But when women get breast implant, they still have sensation in their skin. They have sensation in the, in the nipple. Everything is still there. The only thing is the volume is there. For men, once they get the prosthesis, their sensation is still there. Their orgasm is still there. The level of stimulation, everything is still there. The only thing that's different is now they're able to get the rigidity that they were unable to achieve before. What comes first? It's an interesting one. When we're talking about erectile dysfunction, sort of a chicken egg situation where it's obviously a physical issue, physical dysfunction that can affect the psychology. But then there's certain anxieties and psychological components that can bring about the physical symptoms. So is it a balance of the two? Like what have you, what's your experience tell you? 
I got to tell you, my, my favorite, my favorite is the young guy that comes in and ha- he's had one or two episodes of impotence, meaning they were in a sexual situation and unable to perform. These are my favorite guys because oftentimes they think, oh my gosh, I cannot perform. I can't have sex anymore. It, it's not working. And oftentimes it's a psychological component. They're in a situation where they feel pressure. They are afraid that they're not going to be able to perform. And guess what? they're not able to perform. But the worst part of it is, next time they're in a sexual situation, that comes right back to bite them. It becomes a vicious cycle where they think it's not gonna work. And mind over matter, it's, it's just no no other way of putting it. It's mind over matter. You can, If you can block yourself out, you may not function no matter how much stimulation. Now in the younger guys, it's a little bit harder because you, we, we do have a reflex erection independent of sexual stimulation, independent of psychological sexual stimulation. In the older men, you require a little bit more. But in the younger guys, they have a reflex that they can have an erection without having really feel that psychological stimulation. So in this case, you know, oftentimes can be psychological. But we all know as well as we age, our system begins to age. So there are multiple reasons why you can develop erectile dysfunction. Naturally, you can start with the most basic, which is high blood pressure. People with high blood pressure oftentimes require medication, right? And that medication may cause them to have erectile dysfunction. Diabetics, diabetics, we know that there's nerve injury with time. There's what what we call iatrogenic caused by the physician. So patients who have surgery, either colon cancer surgery or prostate surgery, those patients may become impotent as well. So there's a whole host of reasons why these things can happen. Fortunately, there are numerous things out there. Think about it. Prior to 1998, we had nothing. Patients came in, and I was in practice before that. I was a resident, but patients came in and said, listen, I, um, I can't get an erection. All we could do is something. Just, you know, there's really nothing else we can offer you. We had something like Yohimbin that we used to tell them. There was all these other natural medications, but they didn't necessarily, they weren't proven to work. Not like Viagra was, not like Sildenafil. So once that medication came on board, it allowed people to talk about their erectile dysfunction openly. It's taken years and years, but now patients come in, we're in 2018, what do you mean that that's all we have? I'm like, you're lucky we have that back. 20 years ago, we had nothing. (laughs) (laughs) So it's a good thing. I mean, now we've had three medications, three or four medications. We have injections that work, penile prosthesis that work all these hosts of things that we can do. On a similar subject of premature ejaculation, is that, again, a physical thing or a psychological thing? Again, from your experience, what do you see in that? Well, think about it. When we were evolving, in my favorite word, evolution, right? Mm. I, the, the whole purpose of sexual activity is for procreation. Mm. There's no thought to romanticism back then. Only humans really use sex as recreation and dogs. But humans use sex for recreation, but the idea is to penetrate, ejaculate, and hopefully procreate. And so the amount of time doesn't really matter. In, in fact, you could say that the guy that, that is able to have intercourse and ejaculate quickly, he's just fulfilling his, his duty, right? That's all it is. But we want to have the ability to last as long as we want to because for the recreational purposes, right? But when you're young, you know, there's something called a refractory period. So think back when you were young, Paul. Not that I'm saying you're old. You're a young guy still, right? But think back. 
when you had sex, you used to have an orgasm, you were able to continue as if nothing happened. You know, you hear these guys, yeah, I can go three, four rounds easily, right? Well, as you get older, that doesn't happen for several reasons. Number one is the time between ejaculation and the next erection continues to increase. That's called the refractory period. So the period of ejaculation to the next erection when you're in your teens and your 20s is very short, less than a minute. When you're in your 20s, early 30s, you take a break for maybe a minute, two minutes, and the erection comes back. Well, as you get older, that time gets longer and longer to the point that that second erection does not come back. And I actually have a patient who knows exactly when he can get a second erection after his intercourse. It takes him about three days. Doesn't matter what he does, whether he uses medication or anything, it takes him three days to get another erection after he has intercourse. So he's got to time it properly, right? He doesn't want to waste it. In, in those cases, not psychological, it's actually physiological. And it's just the way that our bodies behave. So unfortunately, I do tell my patients, you have to re-educate yourself. If you want to be able to last longer, then you can't think that I'm going to have an orgasm and then I'm going to be able to continue as if nothing happened. You have to get the pleasure you want and the recreation aspect that you want out of it on the first one because the second one's not coming. Now, there is something called psychological or acquired uh, premature ejaculation. And these are patients who develop premature ejaculation at a later age. And that's a compensatory mechanism. These are guys who are beginning to experience erectile dysfunction. They're not able to maintain their erections very well. And so what they do is during the sexual activity, they try to have an orgasm prior to losing the erection. So it's compensatory. I want to get my orgasm before I lose my erection. Well, it comes to a vicious cycle to the point that now, regardless of what they do, they just can't control that anymore. It's a difficult situation. And there isn't much that we have out there to offer our patients. There's been medications that we've tried, there's exercises, there's sex therapy, all these things that, that we've tried. I'm actually, there's procedures that have been tried, but none of them have really been successful in taking care of this problem effectively. So if there is someone who's suffering from anything we're talking about today and they know there's an issue and maybe they haven't done anything about it just yet, what would you say would be a great first step for them to take? You know, oftentimes you can discuss this with your primary care physician. Unfortunately, these discussions turn into a by the way. You know what a by the way is? <laughs> so you, you, you have your consult, everything is done, okay, we check this, your blood pressure is fine, everything, and Mr. Smith will see you back here in another year or six months, and then they put their hand on the door and they go, by the way, doc, Every doctor hates that. And now you can't spend 10, 15 minutes talking about this issue. So you have to be upfront. You really have to get in there and say, this is my problem. This is what I want to take care of. Not wait till the last minute because that last minute conversation may not happen. And it may be delayed by another three, six months. Or here, let me refer you to a specialist. And that specialist now it takes another three months or two or three months for you to see them. But if you walk in, this is my issue. Yeah, let's address all of that, but what can we do about this? Your physician may be a lot more proactive about doing, doing something about that. Now, here in the U.S., people are very lucky. They can just go, go ahead and go to a specialist. I don't know, in a lot of other systems, you have a gatekeeper. You have to go through your primary in order to be referred to a specialist in order to be seen. Here, you can just make an appointment right out. 
I would make an appointment with somebody who specializes in sexual dysfunction. Not just, you know, penile prosthesis. I mean, yes, that's what I do. But prior to that, yeah, I, I specialize in sexual dysfunction. And speak to a professional. A lot of people, they say a lot of things. Your friends may make comments. They may recommendations. But, you know, they may not be valid. And you may be barking up the wrong tree. My wife and I, we have a very good level of communication, so we can tell each other anything, and we're very comfortable with that. But I can guess that a lot of guys don't have that luxury uh, to share with their partner. But, I mean, my suggestion would always be be comfortable talking about it because that's going to make it less of, a, less of a huge issue once it's out because it sits behind guilt and shame, it seems. That's right. And, and it is. It shames you, and oftentimes there, there may be a lot of, problems with the relationship because the man may be avoiding sexual or contact or intimacy because they're afraid of failure. And that carries over not only at home but everywhere else because they're always depressed. As a side note, you know you know where the expression grumpy old men come from? No. Yeah, well, they're grumpy not because they're old, they're grumpy because they can't get an erection. We're driven by testosterone, right? So we always want to have that erection, we always want to be sexually functional. And so these guys are in their 70s and 80s, and they have their testosterone going, but they can't get an erection. They're grumpy. They see all these beautiful girls, and sex is everywhere, but they're not getting any. They're grumpy old men. So you <laughs> think about how it affects them in everything. They're grumpy with their family. They're grumpy with their friends. They chit-chat amongst each other, but they never come out and say, this is the problem. I'm fortunate in my practice. I bring it out of them. So one of, one of the first things that I ask is, so how's your erection? Because if you're here to see me, I want to know what's going on. This is my specialty. So my practice is a little bit different in that. As you mentioned there, you know, guys will just avoid sex altogether because they're fear of, that fear of failure, but they don't mention that to their partner. <laughs> so their partner has no idea why they're avoiding sex, and that can just create this space gap chasm of miscommunication and lack of communication. And you can just see how easy it is for relationships to fall apart when they don't need to be if someone's straight up. Absolutely. I think, like you said, communication is very, very important. And if they're able to just come out and say it, but, you know, their manhood or their pride doesn't allow them to be upfront about these issues. One of the things that I truly recommend, that, I think, in fact, that would probably be the first thing that you should really try to work on is communicate it to your partner, because that's going to allow you to go into communicate it to a stranger a lot easier and bring your partner with you. We love it when the partner comes in. We really, really do. Because then we're able to, to speak to them and help them understand what's going on as opposed to the guy coming home and say, well, I need to do this, 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 and that. And she's like, what? I don't know what that means. <laughs> so I think it's ideal to always bring your partner. So anytime I get a couple in the office, I think it's a great thing. Oftentimes I get women who bring in their partner. And I get the women who say absolutely everything and the guy just stays quiet. They just don't even say a word. And then I, I ask them, well, what do you think? And then it turns around, I send the woman out of the room and I have a conversation with them. And then they're able to come clean and say exactly what's going on. So what's next for you? You've got obviously ev evolution is on the cards for you. So what's coming up for you in the next year or so? Well, like I said, uh, the Panuma implant is something that uh, is coming on board now. It's, we're probably going to start doing that sometime in August, um, which is very exciting. I'm looking forward to it. So that's one of the things. The other things I continue to involve my techniques, and one of the things that I do with my penile prosthesis is 
you know, one of the, and I'm sure the guys will hear, the guys who need a penile prosthesis, you're going to hear from every physician you see, they're always going to say, one of the things is that may, you, your penis may appear a little smaller. It may look like it might have lost some size. Well, what I tell my patients is I can, the way that I do my techniques, I no longer say that. And because I know how important that is, and the reason I know is because I dealt with it for 14 years. The saddest thing is when you have a guy come in and argue with you that his penis is short. I'm like, no, it's not. Look, I measured it. It looks normal, and it drives you crazy. So we know how important this is. That extra millimeter, centimeter makes a big difference. And so I continue to evolve the techniques and also to make this procedure as cosmetically appealing as possible, to make it look like they really don't have anything. And I think that's important. You know, women walk around when they get a breast implant, they go around and they're showing off, their, they open up their chest. What do you think? Guys never go around and open up their fly and say, what do you think of my junk? They get a hashtag real quick. <laughs> Yeah, that'd be thrown in jail. Oh, yeah. <laughs> this has been a really intriguing conversation, and I'm just so grateful. Thank you so much for talking about this stuff. Um, I was just reading your bio as well, that you are the founder and president of the Mission of Hope, so that's a free surgical care for the needy in the world. That's an amazing course. Actually, it's, yeah, it's very interesting. So uh, back in 2003, I met a Filipino nurse that was working with me in the operating room, and she was talking to me about these patients in the Philippines, in a remote area of the Philippines, that had this, these huge hydroseals, which is a collection of fluid in their scrotum that are called bolobolos. Those are big hydroseals that they get. And these guys are ashamed to go out. They, they wear baggy clothes. They even wear clothes that look almost like skirt. They don't have, they, they, they usually are single. They don't want to be bothered. And they're, they're ashamed of that area because it just looks so horrible. And they even have trouble urinating. So I was doing a hydroseal in, in the operating room and she saw that I was able to do it in like 15 minutes. And she goes, can you do this even for the big ones this quickly? I said, yeah, this is very easy, it's easy to do. So she invited me to go with her back to her community in, in the Philippines. We put together a mission. We didn't know what to call it, but our first mission was to go and do these hydroseals. And in one week we did 75 patients and we saw everything from small ones to very, very large hydroseals. And it was a great experience. And as a result, I recruited a general surgery. My wife is a gynecologist and she works here in New York City. Um, and so with the general surgery, the gynecologist and a whole group of nurses and volunteers, we put together a mission of about 25 people and headed back to do some more work. So over the years, we've done about, now about 17 missions around different parts of the world. So we've been to the Philippines several times, the Dominican Republic several times, uh, Jamaica, Guyana, and it's been very exciting. It's kind of hard to do, it's a lot of work, but we're all self-funded. We collect our own, we pay our own airfare, and throughout the year, we have a storage where we put things in and use as needed. That's just wonderful. Well, Dr. Valenzuela, thank you so much for coming on the show. It's my pleasure, Paul. Pleasure meeting you. Thanks, Dr. V. Thank you for listening, everyone. If any of the content of the show today resonated and you need to talk to someone, as per Dr. Valenzuela's advice, see your GP and or go straight to a specialist. There's advice to be had. There are treatments but also really importantly for you guys, if you're going through something and you haven't shared it with your partner, perhaps it's time to consider doing that. 
because there's no guilt or shame to be had. We're all human. Our bodies are not perfect. Now, we are just two weeks away from episode 50. I'm so excited because that's a huge milestone for the show. And so I've managed to arrange for a very special guest, a multi-millionaire entrepreneur. We're going to dig deep into failure, why it's important to fail in order to succeed. So stay tuned for that. Make sure you head over to your app and subscribe to the show if you haven't already. Just by clicking that subscribe button makes a huge difference. Thanks, guys. I'll see you on Sunday for the bonus episode. And next week for my interview with Rick Sharp, we're talking about the price of heartbreak. Ciao for now.